Marvin, I was looking back to our emails and realized we first connected way back on October 2012. It's hard. <laughs> it's hard totally to crap. believe it. It has. I mean, I I checked out our first email. Yeah. So it has been around 12 years uh, now since we first met in Istanbul. It was a, a meeting in Istanbul, and it was a great to meet you. And you have a had an interesting journey from studying a history uh, and to being an early engineer at Yahoo yeah. and becoming a successful investor and mentor. If you were to tell your life story, what would be yeah. the key moments, people's experiences uh, that define your path? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, so a bit about me, uh, Canadian, um, born in the U.S. but raised in Canada, Taiwanese immigrant parents. Um, lived in Asia here for a couple of years after after uh, college, but then I moved to the U.S. in San Francisco in '99. So I've been here almost 25 years. Uh, so did the startup thing. Was early at a startup that raised about 63 million dollars in e-commerce. I ran online marketing for them. The business imploded. Um, then I was very fortunate to join Yahoo back in 2001. Um, so I was an engineer. I was actually always on the business side, the sales and marketing. And um, I ended up running. I, I expanded Yahoo to about 45 different countries during my time there. So I spent 10 and a half years there. Um, we met after I left Yahoo. So I took two years off doing the angel investing and boards. That's when we first met, I think it's 20, yeah, 2012, probably. Yeah, that's right. 2012. Um, and then um, after that, I was very lucky to, um, you know, I joined 500 startups. So I started a San Francisco office for 500 startups. And so I was, um, I, I helped run fund three and fund four and ran the core accelerator program for about six years. Uh, left um, in end of 2019. And so I ended up, uh, joining and running a gaming holding company based between Germany, LA, and Ukraine. Uh, did that for about two years. So we had about 18 companies, like all like gaming studios and uh, gaming IP licensing and everything related with gaming. Um, so that was super interesting going back to operating. Um, and while I was doing that, um, I started a, um, you know, two things. I started joining a bunch of um, investment com committees at different VC funds and um, I started my own small VC fund. It's a rolling fund called Diaspora. So we've been fortunate to co-invest on a bunch of deals. Um, and I've also been doing investments in LP checks out of a holding company that I run with my partner from Saudi Arabia called Sukna Holdings. And so I do a bunch of different things, right? So I don't run the gaming holding company now. Um, I rolled off, unfortunately, after the, the Russians invaded um, Ukraine because it's hard to run a company from San Francisco and most of the team being in Ukraine. Uh, but now I mainly invest full time. So whether through my holding company or through the the, the through Diaspora Ventures, uh, which is a pre-seed fund that focuses on European founders focusing on the U.S. market. So it's very specific. So, yeah, that's kind I of mean, the, the, the <laughs> random story, right? Like random, random sort of like background. So having been in Silicon Valley for many years now, yeah. you have seen behind the curtain of the tech industry hype and startup world. Yeah. In your opinion, what is the dark side of Silicon Valley that rarely get discussed openly? Hmm. Well, I mean, so many of them. I mean, the, the success stories of just like, like all the success stories get cleaned up. So there's like, and also I think the dark side, it just sort of like, everyone seems <laughs> to think it's easier than it really is. And so you hear these stories where it's like, oh, they did this and all of a sudden they raised like a billion dollars. And now they're like this crazy sort of like huge company without understanding that, well, they worked on this for like four or five years prior to this. Um, they had a whole bunch of pivots, you know, a bunch of co-founders like dropped out. Like there's a, always a long, painful backstory that isn't always sort of like obvious. 
And so I think there's that. I think that it's a, it's such a, it's a very brutal culture because it's just, it's just really hard. Like everyone hears about the success stories, but you don't hear about like the 90% of 90, 95% of companies that don't make it of founders who tried working on a business that end up going nowhere. They're divorced, made, you know, massive debt. Like, just like, you don't hear about that part. Right. So like, it's just, it's a really hard journey. Um, and it's never been easy, right? Like fundraising has never been easy. Maybe it seemed like it was easy in 2020 and 2021, but like, it's never been easy. It's never been easy. I mean, uh, does the VC industry have a close inner circle and do they accept outlier outsiders, immigrants or minorities? Have you experienced or heard of any, uh, these kinds of groups among investors? Yeah, no, I mean, Let me think about that. I mean, not really. I think like you, you'll find that in Silicon Valley is pretty open-minded in general, where it's like, ultimately they don't really care where you come from. It's just like, are you, do you, do you, are you good at what you do? Right? Like, you know, are you really, in, are you working on something that's super interesting and are you credible to sort of like do this? Right. Cause if you think about it, like what 50% of the most successful companies here in Silicon Valley, like are either, you know, immigrants, you know, started by immigrants or, or started by children of immigrants. And so it's a fairly open culture in general about that, but you kind of have to understand the rules of how stuff works. You know, you got to be able to present pretty well. Like there's certain things of just like, there's a, like every, you know, it's, it's fairly open-minded. So I don't, I don't know if that's the case. At least that's, that's not necessarily been my experience. And uh, do you think that uh, VC industry is also Ivy League, white men? Not necessarily. Uh, or... I, I mean, so many of the upcoming funds, like most of the major funds here have like, they're all, a lot of them are minorities, right? Like Indian, Chinese. There's, you know, we're starting to see a lot of like female run sort of like VC funds. There's a bunch of them now. Some of the most impressive, like new emerging fund managers are like female VCs. So I think that there's some, um, the, the, the industry has changed a lot. So Yes, yeah, so you still have a lot of Ivy Leaguers and things, but a lot of them are being washed out, to be frank, right? Like, they aren't always the best ones, and th they don't always do well. I think there's an element of, it is an outsider business, and it gets refreshed all the time. If you had the experience you have now, yeah. but 10 years earlier in your life and yeah. uh, career, Yeah. What would you do differently in terms of work life balance and also family life? Uh, what uh -huh. should you do differently? I mean, the reality is I don't think like I, I think a lot, a lot about this, right? As you know, I write and think about these things and I'm like, I don't think I could I could be doing what I'm doing right now if I didn't do like go hardcore, right? Like, you know. I have lots, you know, I'm very open. I have a lot of family challenges because I never really invested on the family side, invested in my career, but I wouldn't have gotten here if I didn't do that. And so I don't know if there's anything like, I, I definitely think I definitely would have paid a lot more attention to family and prioritized a lot of that. That's way more important. Now I'm like learning that stuff the hard way. Um, but I career wise, I, I'm not sure I would have gotten to, to my, to the point that I've gotten career wise if I didn't sacrifice like this is a hard like you know for some reason is this idea that a lot of people believe like you can have it all i i don't believe that i i actually think like you have to make some hard choices right like it's not like work-life balance i don't believe in work-life balance i believe in like work-life choices and so, so I mean, just that's a harsh that's that's a harsh harsh truth of just like like it i think I think if I was a lot more thoughtful, I think I probably could have mitigated some of the, the issues and 
prioritize things a little bit differently on the other hand where i'm just like yeah but i probably wouldn't have learned the lesson <laughs> like i'm not sure i would have learned the lesson like i feel like people only learn the hard way <laughs> and you learn the hard way by just making those mistakes unfortunately um i have an idea and um also would like to ask you about the family uh, work-life balance yeah what advice would you give to your daughter in a form of blog post Uh, drawing from your own experiences. I was thinking to write my uh, son and also daughter about uh, some of my advices to them to read. They don't care now, but yeah. uh, at some point they will read what I have written in the past. Yeah. So what sh should be your advices to your daughter? I think, you know, I think that this idea that you can take your 20s off, I think is a mistake. I think you should have fun do those things that actually really matter, right? Because of the experience stuff. Um, and I've really come around to this, um, you know, actually I'd recommend that she reads a book called like, um, it's, it's called Die With Zero by like Bill Perkins. He's a hedge fund guy and poker player, like super interesting dude. Like there's sort of like seasons of your life. And I think sort of, I wish I had a little bit more fun during my 20s and not being the serious, where it's just like, you know, I optimize sometimes the wrong thing. Um, and so knowing what I know right now, I think I'm, I probably would have been, a little bit more easygoing in doing my 20s um, because I think I went too hardcore. I was very, very hardcore in my 20s where I just felt really, really behind. And so, for example, like I'm really glad I did the backpacking thing. A lot of my friends didn't do the backpacking thing. It just did career only. So I'm glad I did that. But I think the rest of my life, I'm just like, it was all career. I literally just put like literally almost all my time and energy into career stuff. And I probably could have had a little bit more fun <laughs> uh, during that time. And and I, I think there's a season to that. I was much younger back then, so I had a lot more energy and just tried more, tried other things, like taken up other hobbies that would have been probably made me a much more interesting person now. <laughs> uh, interesting. Uh, you studied history in the university. How do you think yeah. that this background has added value to your journey as an investor? Um, I think it's been incredibly helpful. I think, you know, understanding sort of like, especially I did a lot of like Chinese, Indian, European history, and I do a lot of business in Europe now. So you kind of understand a lot more of the cultures and the cultural norms and etiquette and things like that. Um, you know, why people do the the things that they do. Um, it, it is, it's, it's surprisingly was actually very, very helpful, especially for, for a lot of my international expansion career. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it, it actually turned out to be, way more helpful than I thought it would have been. Uh -huh. I mean, you are traveling many countries and understand the roots of Silicon Valley deeply. Um, in your opinion, what other countries often get wrong when trying to create their own startup ecosystems modeled after San Francisco and Silicon Valley? Um, I think they, they draw a lot of the wrong lesson from, from Silicon Valley. Um, in the sense of just like, oh, like you need to like, I think Silicon Valley is like, it's not a formula. I think it's very accidental, right? So for example, like it's very accidental, great weather, great universities, also the the military industry, right? The defense industry was very strong here. So there was a lot of deep science and, and whatnot. I also think there's a bunch of things that, that also were sort of accidents. So for example, non-compete. Um, also a lot of the VC industry started off here too, right? Originally was in Boston, but you know, I think the big part in Boston was that it was, they had like, like, um, they enforced non-compete clauses. So it's very hard for somebody leaving a big company to start a company, right? Cause, cause they would get sued. That was not an issue over here. Plus the nice weather, the, the aggregation, just sort of like, a, you know, also much more chill culture. That's sort of like somewhat more friendly to sort of like engineering, sort of like thinking, 
Um, so there's a whole bunch of accidents that happened here. And so I, you know, I think a lot of ecosystems kind of focus just on one thing where it's like, okay, we're just going to go and fund a whole bunch of VC funds and that's going to solve our problem. Or we're going to go do this one major university and, and get some deep tech that comes out of here. And that's going to solve our problem where it's actually a whole bunch of different pieces coming together. And um... What are your, I mean, what are the three biggest failures or mistakes you have made in your career as an investor? And what key lessons did you learn from them? Do you have I any regrets? Big, um, I mean, I have lots of regrets, right? I, I think, you know, missing certain <laughs> good deals because you're like, or, or for example, honestly, sort of like, you know, doing a bunch of deals that you know would not be good deals. Um, but I think you're like, ah, maybe I'll give it a shot. And, and just, so for example, like, um, Like, I think the biggest mistake that I made, like I, I did so many shitty deals in 2021. So I should not supposed to swear, but I just did so many crappy deals in 2021 because I just got caught up in the excitement of just like, oh, wow, like it's so busy. It's so such a crazy time. And, and, or, or for example, like outsourcing my thinking of just like, oh, here's a bunch of awesome investors in this deal. Like it must be a good deal. And, and not necessarily thinking for myself, I always get into trouble when that happens. And so the deals that I've always done the best in were deals that were like not super popular, right? Like deals that were, uh, let's just say non-consensus deals, right? Where it's like people didn't understand it. Most VCs hated it. You know, like the companies that actually had a hard time fundraising, um, those deals have ultimately weren't just, but I'm just like, wow, like this is such an awesome company, such an awesome founder, such a huge opportunity. Like, I just don't care. Like just having, like acting on my conviction, those have turned out to be great deals versus the ones where it's just like, oh, like, like, you know, cutting corners on sort of like criteria. Every time I cut corners on my criteria that is pretty established now always turns out to be a mistake or deals that are basically like, like as a consensus deal. So it's like, oh, a whole bunch of other investors in this deal. Like I should go do that deal. They just never work out. <laughs> I understand. And what are the difficulties for challenges you face evaluating deals all over the world? Because you are getting lots of deal flow from different parts of the world. Are there any difficulties, especially not being focused on the same uh, location? No, not really. I mean, I, I guess for me, because I've just done so many international deals and many of my, a lot of my, my winning companies, at least in my previous portfolio were, for example, European. So like ManyChat was like Russian, Armenian, US company, right? Like, um, you know, um, you know, Aircall was a French company. So, you know, like Pipeify was a Brazilian company, like I had a whole bunch of really, really awesome companies, but ultimately sort of like ended up here in the US. And so for me, I'm judging everybody sort of at the same sort of like standard. So I, I would say it's not, it's, and because I'm so early, I'm investing at pre-seed and seed level, like ultimately there's sort of like people assessments, right? You know, versus sort of like, oh, like I can do diligence on customers. They have no customers, they have no users, they only have a product most of the time. And so it's just sort of ultimately their bets on people. So are there any personality traits or types of founders you dislike working with? How can you uh, quickly identify them in a brief startup meetings Have you seen founders with difficult personalities end up uh, changing for the better long term? Very rarely. I, I think ultimately, right? Like the way I think about this is like, obviously, almost every founder I meet is super smart and, and driven, right? In general, for me, the biggest thing is just sort of like, are they like, do they really understand sort of like the problem? Do they really understand sort of like the customers that they're going after? That, that's one big part. 
Um, second, second big part is really like, you know, how do these founders actually compare against sort of like my top 10 percentile of founders, right? You know, the Olivier's from Ericol, the Laura's from Shippo, um, you know, you go down the list of, of like, you know, the Alec from Trade Space, right? Like where we're like, you know, you know, I've been a backer of Alec like many times, right? From 500 startups days all the way through to even like my Sukna holding company days, right? Or just like, like I put multiple checks into this company, um, even when they, you know, like they didn't raise a round, like their big round until like this year, right? Like, no, or not this year, it was like last year, 2023. And, but like, you know, it took a long time, right? And so, but it's just like, this is just such an awesome founder with a huge opportunity. Um, and so, but remember, they, it wasn't easy. And so just sort of, I, I compare people like founders against like that founder set. And every time I, you know, I broke the rule, that deal has never worked out. Uh, tell about the rule and evolution process and mindset. How do you select the startups? Yeah, ultimately sort of, you know, so it depends on sort of, you know, on the vehicle, right? So I have two vehicles, but I'm mainly investing out of diaspora right now, right? I'm not doing as much stuff out of, out of the, my holding company, where it's mainly LP checks, but for, for diaspora, it's basically, you know, either myself or my partner, Carlos will look at a company um, we'll talk to the company. If we think it's interesting, um, then we'll usually sort of like discuss it during our, our weekly IC. And then we'll refer that company to sort of like the other partner. The other partner will talk to the company and then we'll kind of discuss where it's like, okay, do we move forward or not? How does this company look versus all the other deals and stuff that we're looking at right now? And it's, it could the, the process could be in between two weeks to like four weeks, but it's pretty fast. Do you have any red flags? Uh, you look out when evaluating these potential investments or in the meetings? Um, so for Diaspora, it's very specific. So because we're focusing on European pre-seed founders, focusing on the U.S. market, you know, most of the founders, we really want to make sure that they're going to move to the U.S. Um, you know, I, I think there are some there are some exceptions where it's like, okay, if you're an open source developer tool, not as important. I think it's helpful to be out here, but like not as critical. But I think almost any other business where if you're not here in the U.S. market, you just don't grow as quickly. I, I think, and, and there's a specific reason for this. We want them to be around other awesome founders. And if you actually, so for example, if you're you're like in the fintech space, you should be in New York. You probably should be in New York, right? Like the density of of great. U.S. focused fintech founders is really high over there, so it's incredibly helpful to be around other great founders. They just move faster. I think if you're a developer tools, um, or if you're like SaaS, you know, B2B software, like you should be in Silicon Valley. There is no other market in the U.S. that's sort of better than this place that you're going to run into other awesome or even AI company, right? Like it's it's Silicon Valley, and so I just think there's this density, so it's very helpful to be around other awesome founders, you just naturally grow faster and move much faster. It's really hard doing it. Not impossible, but really, really hard to do that from your home country. Your, um, your, your network you have... is your, your net worth, right? So do you think that the investment committees with uh, three to five people work well uh, for making outlier high alpha uh, venture investments? Or... Yeah, I, I think it's tougher. I, I think those are really hard to do. But I think it does make sense at later stages, I think because like there's just so much more data you can discuss, right? There's a, you know, it, it's very different for, for the stage that you and I invest in, which is like, you know, 
early stage pre-seed seed, like there's nothing, there's no data. I think it's very, it's a very different beast, which I don't invest at later stage. So it's harder for me to understand. My guess is that for later stage, if you're doing series B, C, Ds, I, I, I think there's a lot more stuff to discuss. And I think that's not in, you know, and, and you're writing bigger checks, right? You're writing 20 million, $50 million checks. I think that's valuable. And you, you, you are but, on the boards yeah. of many startups. How do yeah, some. startup I, I've, board I've rolled off. I've rolled off a lot of them now uh, because, you know, I'm writing smaller checks and it doesn't make as much sense. But yeah, I still sit on a couple of boards. Um, I mean, look, most board meetings are pretty god awful and they're not run very well. Right. Like I, I think what ends up happening is these board meetings just become like reporting meetings. And I'm like, I can read the report like they're, they're better off if they're structured where it's like, OK, like giving board, you know, give your board member homework. Right. Like I need you to go and do this or like like make it sort of partially reporting where it's like, but really have them to sort of like use your board, meet, you know, like use your board members to to get feedback. Right. Use your board members. A lot of them have great experience where it's like I'm trying to get to this decision. What do you think about this? I want to do this but I want your opinion about this, right? Like use your board members. But a lot of them just turn into reporting and meetings and that's a waste of time. Mm -hmm. uh, do you have any startup in your portfolio, past portfolio that successfully pivoted into a creative way uh, that uh, make you surprised? I don't know if I see, like almost every company that I see does some pivot but they're usually not like dramatically big pivots, right? They're usually still focusing on sort of like the core market or there's, or what ends up happening is that they end up pivoting, maybe, you know, same product, but pivoting into sort of like a potentially larger or sort of like a, a market that sort of has a bigger pain. So in general, like almost all of them pivot, but they're usually not dramatic pivots where it's like, oh, we're going from B2B, now we're going to B2C, right? Like that's a very big, big pivot. I, I usually have not seen that. Uh, just uh, in recent question, you answered that also uh, with the red flags. Have you ever passed on investing in a startup solely because of you? I mean, you didn't uh, think the market opportunity was big enough, even if you liked the founder. Yeah, all the time. And But, you know, <laughs> it's just so hard, right? Because like I said, knowing that they pivot... Um, and so it is a really hard conversation, like discussions that you're thinking through this where it's like, wow, this founder is so awesome. But like, I just don't like I'm, I'm in the process right now where it's like it's a previous founder, very successful founder like and good, very close friend. I think I think so highly of them, but just the market that they're going after where I'm just like, I know this market. Like, what am I missing here? That is just like, I just don't see that this could be a good like a, I think it could be a good business. I just don't think it'd be a big sort of like you know, a big, massive business. Does that make sense? Where it's just like, like, I'm like, I'm very convinced. Like I could see you getting to 10 million a year in, in, in business. I don't see you, you know, maybe getting to 50 million a year. I don't see anything bigger than that. Not from what I know. Right. And so for example, it's in the MarTech ad tech space, which I know super well. I'm just like, I just don't see where this goes in the long term, right? For knowing sort of like what the return profile for my money. I'm like, I'm very convinced that you, you're going to build a great business out of this, like a good business. I'm just not convinced this is sort of like a venture scale business. And so, yeah, that's a hard, you know, like this is literally live, like this week I'm like pondering, right? Where I'm just like, ah, you know, do I do this? And my, my gut is probably no, um, even though I love them. I, I love the founder to death. If you don't know the vertical or the industry, what are the three questions that you ask to the founders? 
Um, one of the big questions is really sort of like, it's less about market size, but it's more about the competitive landscape of just like who's a direct and indirect competition that helps you figure out what that market is, at least for me, right? At least to triangulate, like, could this be a big market or not? Or is this a potentially big market? And then it helps me with my research later on to go and dig in a little bit more deeply. That's probably the biggest question, right? Like, what's your direct and indirect competition? And and tell me why. Um, and then the big part is like, tell me why you're going to win. And and another question is really about who their customer is. And uh, for the for example, uh, you have worked in 500 startups more than 10 years, I think. So six years, uh, six years, six years. Six years, six years. Yeah, it felt like Excellent. 10, but like six years. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, acceleration programs such as Y Combinator, 500, Techstars have been and many more, uh, very popular in last decade. In your opinion, how uh, have these types of programs evolved over time? And do we need acceleration programs now? I mean, I'm, I think like YC still does a great job, right? I'm a big fan of Gary Tan in general. I think there's like lots of, there are a couple of good programs, like Pioneer's interesting, but the reality is that most of them are kind of obsolete now. You know, I, I, I do think sort of the pandemic kind of wrecked a lot of these programs because most of them became virtual. And so I think the programs that are able to sort of like go live again, so YC is doing live again. And I think they're shrinking the classes. I think going back to basics are still valuable, right? Like being around other awesome founders, I think is really valuable. But I think most programs are kind of garbage right now um, because most programs have gone down the route of, of really, you know, their business model now is working with corporates or governments and getting paid by them. They're not investment programs. And so that changes the, that changes the nature of these programs. Mm-hmm. And so I think most I mean, of them, and, and I, in Silicon Valley, I think it's also, I would argue outside of YC and maybe like, I think, um, what's AngelList program? AngelList has a, has a, a related program that's that's not bad either but just like outside of those ones maybe pair vc i think most programs are probably not worth doing because i think most that we have enough of a you know there's just enough best practices out there there's lots of masterminds i think just naturally you're seeing a lot of like second time third time founders there's just a lot of expertise right now so i think the original role that these accelerators actually provided it's just less important now so i think the, the it's a much more mature ecosystem and in a mature ecosystem accelerators accelerators become much less important in general and i think there are lots of content nowadays because when it was more 10 years ago the content has different beasts. Uh, hasn't been yes i mean today it, it can be find everywhere i mean on yeah. youtube and uh, from i, I mean the, uh, I the mean, part that lots of the, blogs the, the, the part and mentorship is is pretty pretty much everywhere now i i think the biggest thing that's that accelerators can provide is really the community piece and you're seeing people like on deck do a pretty good job of sort of like building community of founders and great founders you're seeing masterminds right you know like that's become a thing now so i i think like the role of accelerators is is, is still important but just not as important as it used to be i think you have invested Hundreds of startups, 400, 500, I don't know the exact yeah, I'm, number. I'm at, but... I'm at about 463 as of now. Uh, what are the common patterns or traits have you seen the most successful founders? Um, they're just, you know, they have a great understanding of the customer base, but like they're very mission oriented, right? We talk a lot about this. So we're just like, they're just going to work on this thing, like with or without your money, right? And and so, and, and just like they're relentless. They're, they're just like really, really good. They're learning machines. 
like they're they're smart but also humble at the same time i you know one of the traits i just can't stand is like arrogant founders who think they know everything you know i think there's a big difference being being confident and being arrogant right where it's like you can be confident but like you know are do you still sort of like are are you are you a truth seeker right in the sense of when i say truth seeking of like hey i i you know i'm trying to get to the best decision so i want to go and understand sort of other people's perspectives versus like i know everything like you don't need like those founders just never never last and so what is the biggest mistakes that these kinds of first time founders make um they they don't ask for advice um and not to say you have to take the advice right but i think it's it's ultimately sort of like they don't leverage their investors or they look at their investors as sort of like more of a so so i'll give you an example like i think a good founder like they're very very good about like updating you right good news bad news are sort of like really good about updates versus sort of like most founders are like they only update you when things are good and they just disappear like and this is usually most guys where like it's usually guy founders where when things are not good you never hear from them because they're just embarrassed right and i'm like i'm not going to judge you by like bad news right like just tell me what's going on like don't surprise me right like good things bad stuff doesn't matter like we're here to help you right like and so leverage us where like for me it pisses me off when a founder tells me oh we're just shutting down and i'm like what like out of the blue like this could have been headed off like six months, you know, because most likely you were already having problems like six months or nine months ago, and you just didn't have the courage to come and reach out. Like, I'm not going to yell at you. Like, it's, it's we're here to help you, right? Like, we're here, we're here as a resource. We're your partner to help you out in your business. Like, share with us good stuff. Great. Share with us bad stuff. Like, let's troubleshoot, right? Like, ask for help. And so I think the good founders, usually female founders, are pretty good about asking for help. Where it's like, I have this issue. Like, let's talk through it. Great. Let's jump on a call and talk through it. That's what that's what I like to see. I see. And uh, what kind of industries do you think that? Uh, I mean, of course, AI and uh, machine learning and deep uh, tech has been uh, completely different in a couple of years' time. What industry trends do you see that it will grow in upcoming years? I mean, I'm I, I'm still a believer in general of sort of like the the low code no code stuff, which I would argue is also maybe like the developer tool set. I'm doing a lot of I'm investing a lot of developer tools, still really needed, right? Um, because ultimately, if you think about it, sort of like what are what are the what are the products and tools that are going to be used by by people? And so I I do you know as as you know I do way more B two B stuff now because of space that you know you know adoption of of from SMBs or large companies of technology is still relatively low, right? So just like there's still a lot more room for adoption of tools, like outside of AI tools, like I'm just talking in general, like basic cloud services, most large companies are still not using cloud services, a lot of software still on-prem, right? I think, you know, this growing sort of like solopreneur, growing sort of like SMB space, there's still lots of op- there's still lots of tools are still going to be used by them right that there's glowing influencer class um, like there's just so many new sort of like businesses and, and that are sort of like growing and they're all going to need to use products like like software products right to sort of like you know because software's leverage right allows them to sort of like instead of people doing it you're using technology so there's still lots and lots of room for growth there so i'm still looking at these type of products um If you have been um, super character or uh, in Marvel uh, stories, who should you be, and what should your superpowers uh, be uh, today? Yeah, I mean, I wish I was Tony Stark. 
Um, so just being super smart, right? I, I wish I was him or maybe, you know, or maybe using Batman where like, I'd love to be Batman. These are just like normal people doing sort of like extraordinary things. Right. So, so I feel like that's sort of the, the big thing of just like being super, I wish I was like that, like super smart and, um, and, and helps to be super rich. <laughs> Both of them happen to be super rich. <laughs> what is your superpower, by the way? Hmm. I think I'm pretty good at, at digesting information. Um, and I, I think I'm, I think I'm a fairly direct communicator. Uh, and, you know, you, you know, my reputation, not all my companies like, or love me. Um, but I, I do think sort of, I'm, I'm pretty good at sort of like, at least trying to be helpful from like, at least trying to tell the truth, because I think so many investors don't tell the truth. Um, and that's, that's an issue, right? Like that's, that, that is a legitimate criticism of most of Silicon Valley or just like most investors are not honest. And I think most investors like, you know, they, you know, you know, believe it, you know, like I'm, I'm a believer of sort of founder friendliness, but I think they think about founder friendliness in the wrong way. Like for them, it's just like, I'm your cheerleader. And I'm like, no, like that's part of the job as a, as an investor to be your cheerleader. Right. But I think part of your job is also telling telling the founders like when you think they're doing something wrong or they're going the wrong direction or they're not facing the reality where it's like like the you know and i've i've been i've been having so many of these hard conversations particularly last year almost two years now of telling founders where it's like hey your burn rate is out of control what are you doing this doesn't make any sense um and you know ultimately they don't have to listen to me but like having those hard conversations where it's like okay should you be fundraising maybe you shouldn't be fundraising or maybe you should be doing this instead uh, because I've, I've been doing this for a long time, right? And and having those hard conversations, most investors either don't know what they're doing or if they do know what they're doing, but they don't want to offend the founder, but then that's not good for the founder in the long run. So having the, I actually think, I don't know if that's my superpower, but um, not all my founders like me because of just like, I'm willing to have that hard conversation um, and challenge them, right? Like that's actually your job. So how to become a brutal uh, mentor? What is your secret sauce? I, I mean, I mean, ultimately it has to be like, are you trying to do the right thing for like, look, I, I, I will, you know, most of these companies will not work out. I know that that's a game, right? But are you ultimately trying to do the right thing for, for them and for the business? You know, it, you know, I, I'm brutal. I, at least I think I'm brutal, not because I want to be an asshole. I, I think I'm brutal because I ultimately sort of like, I care about them and the business, right? And I have told companies where it's like, just shut it down. Right. Like, what are you doing? This makes no sense. Just shut it down. Right. Um, you know, yes, I'm going to lose all my money, but whatever. Right. Like, I know the game, but like, you're going to lose your time. And, and there's no ultimately sort of for where the business is at right now. There's probably no future. Just shut it down. And so I'm willing to have those conversations because ultimately it comes from at least I think I'm trying to do sort of like right by them. And so it has to come from uh, doing right by them. Uh, and reverse, if you could pick a person to be your mentor who would it be um i don't know i i mean i've been pretty lucky already with my mentors right in general so like like remember some of my mentors are virtual right where it's just like oh like you know like whether they're some of them are dead right or the books that i read or some of them are just like like virtually from listening to interviews and stuff with them um you know like probably charlie munger i think he's like one of the smartest dudes around. So, so unfortunately he's passed away, but like, but I've read all, you know, I'm reading all his books and stuff and I've read, you know, poor Charlie's almanac and I've listened to his interviews. And so I feel like you can get mentorship without sort of like having them, but I've also been very, very lucky. Sort of, I'm in a bunch of great masterminds. I've had a lot of great VC mentors. 
And so I, I'm, I'm pretty happy with sort of who I have as, as sort of like mentors right now, both virtual, dead or alive, um, as well as sort of like live mentors. So yeah, I've been lucky so far. So I know that you are reading lots of books and also listening lots of podcasts. Any recommendations for startups and entrepreneurs? Um, I think like any, like in general, I like I, there's just so many great things out there. So I'm a big fan of David Senra's like founders. Um, I invest like the best, you know, Patrick Oshani is like unbelievable. Um, you know, I, I'm a big fan of 20 minute VC. So Harry is a, a friend. He's awesome. Uh, so there's so many great podcasts out there. Um, there's so many amazing, amazing podcasts out there. I, you know, I, I recommend sort of like listening to these podcasts are all good. Um, you know, I also like uh, Turpentine VC, um, you know, at least as an investor, I, I get a lot of value from Eric Turnberg does a great job of interviewing like great VCs in general. Um, so many great resources out there, but so many awesome books. Like I actually think like listen to the podcast, read the blog post, but like actually go and honestly just go read books. Marvin, thank you very much. It was a always pleasure to talk with you and a great conversation. Thank you very much. No, thank you for having me. <laughs>